If you don't know me, yes, my name is Dale, and I am part of the team that helps lead New Life Community Church. Now, I want to start this morning with a quick show of hands for this question. Who remembers the 90s cartoon, The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Excellent. So I've got a core group. I've got a core group who knows what I'm talking about. For those of you who don't, have no fear. I, Dale, have prepared a PowerPoint. Thank you. Thank you. Slide one is the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The show had a very simple premise. This is a group of teenagers who also happen to be mutant turtles and ninjas. You don't require any more explanation than that, clearly. And like every group of heroes, they needed an imposing bad guy with a dumb name to fight. And the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, or TNMT for short, had this guy... The Shred... No. no. That's, I don't know how that got in there. Sorry, guys. Sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> they had this guy. There we go. The Shredder. Very much more imposing. <laughs> now, when I was growing up, this was one of my favourite TV shows. And since there were four turtles, who were all brothers, and there are four Kratzky boys in our household, I'm sure you can imagine it was a no-brainer that we would all like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And then, one fateful Christmas, we each received one of the much-coveted Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle action figures from our parents. Now, my parents are in this room today. Mum, Dad... This could get a little bit intense. I'm very sorry. My brother Dan is in the room. Dan, I'm sorry about that. We all got one action figure, and at first, they all seemed to be pretty randomly assigned by my parents. But as I considered it for a moment, and believe me, I considered it, I saw a pattern. My youngest brother, Andy, got Michelangelo. Okay? Michelangelo. Uh, He's very cool, he's got nunchucks, Uh, he's a very laid-back guy, likes pizza, they all like pizza, but but he's more of a surfer kind of guy, his attitude is very go-easy. And to be honest, his character fits perfectly with my youngest brother, Andy, and it only got more appropriate the older he got. So, well done, Mum and Dad, I I think you got that one right. Then came the twins, the middle two, Cy and Dan. And Sai was given Raphael. Okay. Now, Raph was a pretty broody, hot-headed, short-tempered kind of guy who had lots of intense emotions. Kind of like my brother Simon. In fact, exactly like my brother Simon. And, you know, Raphael's got those cool uh, three-pronged swords. Okay? Ironically, they're also called Sai. All right? Some thought went into this, Mum and Dad. Um, Yeah. And then there was Dan. And he got Leonardo. There's Leonardo. (laughs) Now, Leonardo was the leader of the group, the leader of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And (sighs) a 
That's a little bit weird, really. Because it's not like real life. Because Dan isn't, wasn't the leader of our four brothers. So I didn't really understand why you got that one. But it's, you know, it's fine. That's just a cartoon. So. <laughs> over it now, yeah. Anyway, so Leo's got these awesome katana swords, okay? And they flash with light in the heat of battle. Super cool, super cool. And then there's me, which leaves me with Donatello. There we go. (laughs) There he is. Look at him. Got a D on his belt buckle. It's a little bit like the D in my name, I guess. He's got a um, purple mask. I don't really like purple. Actually, do you know what my favourite colour is? Blue, like Leonardo. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> He's got a bow staff. That's what that is. It's essentially a big stick. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. you know, is that cool? It's not, it's not cool. Do you know what's cool? Twin katanas flashing in the light of battle. That is what's cool. Mum and dad. <laughs> Some of you are saying, going, I thought we came to a preach at church this morning. <laughs> not Dale's therapy session. Anyway, Leonardo, it's not what I got. It's fine, I don't care. This is Donatello, this is who I got. But I do remember going to my parents and and laying everything out that I've just said to you, knowing that it was clear that I should have actually got Leonardo. Not just because of the compelling case that I've just presented, um, but because in reality, whenever we went out as kids, I had to be responsible for my brothers. Whenever they wanted to go off and do some dumb stuff, I was the one who had to stop them. Whenever they got in trouble with someone who wanted to pound their faces in, I'm the one who had to stand up and step in. I stood in the way. I was the eldest. I was the leader. I was the most responsible. I had the most responsibility. So I should have been recognised, right? Yeah, right, right. In my silly, sinful, childish way, I thought I should get Leonardo, not because the toy was any better, but because I deserved it. Because I wanted the symbol and the standing. I wanted to be recognized. I wanted that recognition of my role and my responsibility. I wanted my greatness to be known over against my brothers. 30 years later, and as as Tim has already pointed out, I'm mostly over it. I say mostly because that sinful childish, clamouring for attention and jockeying for position is still inside me. Just as it's inside each one of you and just as it's inside the disciples. And what that means is if we're not careful, sometimes it can unexpectedly, slyly raise its ugly head in our hearts and outwork itself in our lives. Now this is just a silly example from my childhood, but the reality is that same attitude and behaviour can still crop up in me. Especially when there's something that I've done or I've worked hard on and it isn't acknowledged or acknowledged or accredited to me. Or I feel like I've been overlooked somehow or not given something I would deserve. And the problem is, guys, 
that this way of thinking is ingrained into the way the world works. We're all encouraged to have our say, to take what's ours, to strive and strain to get the next promotion, achieve the next qualification, or arrive at the next life stage. We're told we can be anything, achieve anything, as long as we push ourselves harder, faster, and further to get ahead of the competition, as long as we show that we are greater than the next person. At its worst, the way of the world has us climbing and clambering and trampling over anyone and anything that gets in the way of our greatness. So with all that in mind this morning, we're going to look at what Jesus had to say about what it means to really demonstrate greatness in his kingdom. So if you have your Bibles, let's open them to Mark chapter 9, and I'm going to start at verse 30. As you do that, I'm just going to pray. Heavenly Father, would you stir our hearts even now, Lord? As we come to you and engage with your word, your life-giving word, would you send your spirit to work in our hearts so that we might receive the full measure of goodness that you have for us this morning? Amen. Mark 9, starting from verse 30. Leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there, for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. And he said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed. But three days later, he will rise from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying, however, and they were afraid to ask what he meant. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing on the road? But they didn't answer, because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. I have to say that uh, of all the mad things that the disciples have done in the book of Mark up to this point, I think this might be the most bonkers Arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And here's why I think it's crazy. The disciples are standing in the presence of the single greatest being in existence. The single greatest human to ever walk the earth. Jesus, who is not just a man, but God Incarnate, that means God in the flesh, the supreme being. In fact, Jesus is so great that some of them have just come down a mountain where they saw his greatness physically manifested in glorious visual beauty as Jesus was transfigured before them and he radiated pure white light. And then he tells them that he, God incarnate, will die a humiliating death at the hands of his own creation, but will return to life three days later. Why does he tell them that? Because he's trying to help them understand the earth-shattering greatness of what is about to happen, or will soon happen. Remember, it's like 
Jesus is grasping two ropes in this moment. In one hand, he's gripping the entirety of human history, and in the other hand, he is gripping the future of humanity's trajectory with God. And he wants to show his disciples that in this moment, these two cords can only be drawn together and united in his death and in his life. Humanity only has a future if he dies. Jesus is trying to reveal something to them about the greatest, most significant moment in the history of the cosmos. And they're squabbling over who gets to be Leonardo. Do you see that? Absolute madness. Any other greatness, any other accolade, credit, or achievement is infinitesimally inconsequential compared to what Jesus is doing. Just being there in Jesus' presence should have been greatness enough. Being sat at his feet as he taught them should have been greatness enough. The fact that they get to be in his presence day in and day out should have been greatness enough. But they don't get it. But here's the problem. The same is true for us. We don't always get it either. There's nothing wrong with godly ambition and aspiration. I just want to say that and lay that out there. For example, 1 Timothy 3.1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's good. It's good. This God-given direction and drive in our lives is good and is pleasing to God. And it requires obedience of us as we seek to follow the path that God lays before us. But often, like the disciples here in this passage, we are faced with a very different type of ambition. The type of worldly, selfish ambition for greatness that we talked about earlier. And selfish ambition is, that is a slippery sin, as all sin is. But it often masquerades as healthy ambition. It can look great from the outside as we say all the right things to all the right people, but all the while sin is at work in our hearts as pride and conceit can motivate us and steer us and shape our decisions. The Apostle Paul warns us about this in Philippians 2 verse 3, and he gives us the counter to it at the same time. The Apostle Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Can you see how those two things cancel each other out? If you always think of someone else as more significant than yourself, you're unlikely to be able to do something out of selfish ambition that puts them down and elevates you. The counter to selfish ambition and conceit is humility. And humility comes when we recognize that we are fundamentally no greater than anyone else. We're just as sinful, we're just as incapable of pleasing God as anyone else is without the help of God himself. 
But humility does go further than just recognizing our need for God. Because whereas selfish ambition causes us to clamber over others as we strain to reach for great things for ourselves, so humility at work causes us to elevate and lift up others so that they can achieve great things for God. And that helps us understand what Jesus means when he corrects the disciples in verse 35. So Mark 9, verse 35. Jesus sat down. He called the 12 disciples over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. You see that pattern again. You can't do stuff out of selfish ambition and conceit if you're always lifting other people up as greater than yourself. Later on in Mark 10, 42 to 45, Jesus expands on this exact point when he says, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says we are not to follow the ways of this world. We're not to lord it over people or flaunt our authority. We were saved For greater things. We were made to be different. Jesus says that in his kingdom, if you want to be a good leader, then you've got to be a great servant. And that servant-heartedness isn't an add-on to the Christian life. It's, It's central to it. It underpins it. It's foundational. Being a Christian is about being Christ-like. And there is no greater example of servant leadership than Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Jesus says he came not to be served like a great master, but to serve like a great servant. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this in Philippians 2, 5 to 8, when he says, have this, this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see how Jesus didn't grasp for great things for himself? Instead, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross the most humiliating, lowest form of execution that the Romans had. Jesus said he came to be served, not to serve. Uh, He came to serve, not be served. As Jesus did that, I want to show you another thing. As Jesus humbled himself, he elevated the whole of humanity to a place where they could do great things for God. Before that is impossible. But with that, humanity is able 
to please God. And then we read in verse 9 of the same passage. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. As Jesus humbled himself, then God raised him up, lifted him up, exalted him. And the same principle is at work for us as well. When we practice humility and count others as more significant than ourselves, it's God who lifts us up. So if you want to lead in God's kingdom, then serve. If you want to be first in God's kingdom, then consider yourself last. And if you want to be great in his kingdom, then you need to consider yourself least. In God's kingdom, the best servants make the greatest leaders. Let's continue, Mark 9.36. Then he put a little child among them. And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my father who sent me. Jesus makes an immediate illustration of what he's teaching the disciples. He takes the little child who in their culture at that time was the least in terms of social standing. A child had no honour, no privilege, no position. And Jesus says, when you, when you count this child as more significant than yourself, when you welcome them into relationship and you lift them up so that they can do great things for God, you're also welcoming me and my father into a deeper relationship with you. Do you see how that works? As you raise up the least in our lives, in this world, you enter into a deeper relationship with God, who is the one who raises all. Matthew 18, verse 4, highlights another teaching point of Jesus in this moment when he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The child's got no authority, power, position inherently, no status, and it is solely reliant on its parents for everything it needs. And Jesus says the recipe for greatness is to be the same, to do the same, to recognize that we have no inherent authority or power or position or status, and that we are solely reliant on our Heavenly Father for everything we need. Let's look at our final section in Mark 9. We're going to read from verse 38. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against us is for us. If anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. So we've seen what Jesus was teaching about greatness in his kingdom. Then we've seen an illustration that he's used to help the disciples understand. And now we see a practical application of it with the verses we just read. The situation is someone's been going around casting out demons in Jesus' name, but the disciples are having none of it. Why? Because once again, they're thinking of themselves as greater than this man. 
They're the ones who've been following Jesus around. They're the ones who've been receiving his teaching and practicing what he's taught. Who the heck does this guy think he is? He's not one of them. They don't recognize his ministry. Interestingly, John doesn't say to Jesus, we tried to stop him because he wasn't following you, i.e. Jesus. As the ESV puts it, John says, we tried to stop him because he was not following us, i.e. the disciples. They were greater in their eyes than this guy. He ought to be following them. He ought to be sitting at their feet and learning from them. But here he is casting out demons all by himself. And Jesus says, no, don't stop him because he's doing my work. Just because this person isn't in the disciples' group doesn't mean his contribution is of any less value in God's kingdom. Jesus says, if anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you, that person will be rewarded. It doesn't matter if someone in the church down the road doesn't belong to our group of churches. It doesn't matter if they don't worship the same way we do. It doesn't matter if they structure their government in a different way than we do. We are not somehow greater than them. If they are following Jesus and doing work in his name, what does it matter if they're not following us? Who are we that they should follow us? Jesus says both they and we will be rewarded for anything we do because of him, even up to a cup of water. Our job is to exercise humility, to consider them as more significant than ourselves. And instead of reaching for great things for ourselves, we need to lift them up so that they can achieve great things for God. And the same is true of every single person here. As you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of your brothers and sisters sat next to you and around you. With that in mind, as I draw my message to an end in terms of application, I want you to consider a few things. What sort of greatness do you aspire to? What sort of greatness do you aspire to? Ask yourself this, are you doing anything out of selfish ambition? Okay, ask yourself that before God. There's a moment this morning to say, do you know what God, my motivation's not right in this. There's something of me that's unhealthy and ungodly driving this thing forward, and I'm sorry. Are you doing anything out of selfish ambition? Or are you humbling yourself and considering others more significant than yourself? Are you actively trying to lift others up so they can achieve greatness for God? Or are you straining to grasp greatness for yourself? Like Jesus, are you looking not to be served, but to serve? Or do you lord it over others, flaunting your authority? at work, in your home, in the way you serve? And are you like a child who, reliant on your heavenly father, 
who is reliant on your heavenly father for everything you need? Or do you look down on others because they don't follow Jesus like you do? This is a moment this morning to consider these things humbly before God. And when we come to him and we confess our sins, he's just to forgive us. And he picks us back up and he says, go again. And if you are laying yourself down and lifting others up, if you are looking at others as more significant than yourself, well done. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep leading by example. Keep being a servant-hearted leader. That's what Jesus loves. And I promise you this, that as you humble yourself, God will raise you up. You don't need to strive for position. You need to lift others up and wait for God to lift you up. I want to encourage you this morning. The joy of knowing you're the least in God's kingdom is that from there, God himself might be pleased to lift you up to be the greatest. Can I have the worship team up, please? I want us to finish by coming full circle, really, and setting our eyes on the one who truly owns the title of greatest. And we're going to read 1 Chronicles 29, 11. So let's all stand together. I'm going to read that, and then we're going to go into worship. Let's just set ourselves in a place of worship. <coughs> Let's set our eyes towards our Heavenly Father. One Chronicles twenty nine eleven says this. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. That's what greatness looks like. Let's turn our eyes to our Heavenly Father in worship now. Maybe there's a moment in worship where you need to respond to something I've said. God's pricked your conscience, put his finger on your heart. But otherwise, let's praise God for all he's worth. And he's worth a lot because he is the greatest. Amen? I'm going to hand over to the worship team.